This program is a paid commercial announcement from Jacob Media Partners and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Your radio doctor does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on your radio doctor. Always consult your own physician. Today's program has been pre-recorded. When Recovery Centers of America at Devon opened its campuses on the main line and in South Jersey, they offered a new approach, local addiction treatment led by an expert caring team of professionals. RCA has since helped thousands and leads the way in innovative programs and exceptional inpatient and outpatient care, all in a beautiful setting that allows for healing and recovery. RCA answers the phone and admits patients 24-7, 365, including the holidays. All admitted patients and staff are routinely tested for COVID-19. Call now at 1-888-RECOVERY. That's 1-888-RECOVERY. Talk Radio 1210. WPHT, WPHT, WOGL, HD3, Philadelphia. From the Cherry Hill Volvo Studios, where relationships matter. It's time for the Delaware Valley's first radio doctor. On call every Sunday morning at 10. This is your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. Listen, seven months or 10 months is an absolutely exceptional, exceptionally short time frame to produce this vaccine. Your health determines your life, your longevity, and your happiness. Let your radio doctor lead the way with your medical education. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Good morning on this last Sunday in July. Thank you for sharing your morning with us here on Your Radio Doctor. I'm your host, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Joining us today is Dr. Denny Carice. Chief Science Officer of Recovery Centers of America and Adjunct Associate Professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Pennsylvania. Our topic, the opioid epidemic. Last week, we learned factors that led to this current crisis. This week, Dr. Carice returns to discuss the various forms of treatment, including counseling, also the medications that help people ease away from their opioid use disorder. Welcome, Denny. Thanks for returning this week. Thanks for having me. Denny, last week we talked about the opioid epidemic in our country and how we arrived at this point. You explained the crisis came in four waves. 1996, along with blood pressure, temperature, pulse, pain became the fifth vital sign. There was a big drive for improved pain management, aggressive marketing by pharmaceutical companies to encourage primary care docs to prescribe opioids for every kind of pain. By 2010, heroin's pouring in from Mexico, purer, cheaper. Why spend 80 bucks for OxyContin when you can get the same high with heroin for only $20? And then by 2013, fentanyl was the new kid on the block, 100 times stronger than morphine. Then tweak it a little by adding one oxygen molecule, you get carfentanil, which is 10,000 times the strength of morphine. And now we're hearing cocaine is laced with fentanyl. This is mesmerizing to me, Denny, and we've learned from listening to you that many of the patients with substance use disorder or opiate use disorder have an underlying mental illness that contributes to the use of these drugs. How often is that the case? Well, actually about 60% of people who come to Recovery Centers of America for substance use disorder treatment also have a psychiatric or a mental health problem that needs treatment while they're with us. That's why we have psychiatrists and psychiatric nurse practitioners. But uh, when you think about it, it's a perfect storm. If you're depressed, you might gravitate to cocaine or amphetamines to pick you up. If you're anxious, you might gravitate to sedatives or opioids. And so, yes, the um, people have with mental illness sometimes turns to drugs, but also sometimes drugs contribute to the mental illness. And then add COVID to the mix and all bets are off. Absolutely. Um, 
Yeah, and and Danny, you enlightened us on a previous show back when you were with us several months ago. That when a person who uses drugs hears there's a new dealer in town who has a drug that gives a bigger high, they don't think about the additional risk, like your example of lacing coke with fentanyl. Maybe it's obvious, but what's the psychology behind that lack of fear? Yeah, it's very interesting, and most people without, I would say, the genetic predisposition and the the mindset of somebody who is using drugs and alcohol can really has a tough time comprehending this. So um, it's basically if somebody, you got to remember the brain is hijacked. You know, Nora Volkov, the head of um, National Institute on Drug Abuse, showed us back as far as 2001 the difference between a normal brain, somebody who's using amphetamines, somebody who's one month and then 24 months sober from amphetamines. And different parts of the brain light up and they come back, but you don't get all of that back. So the brain is essentially what she would say is hijacked. So when people hear that there's a new drug out there and that in particular, they'll hear somebody died of it, it's so strong, their innate response is, wow, that must be great heroin. I'm going to try and get some. It's counterintuitive, but it really is the reality of this hijacked brain. And when you explain that, it makes perfect sense, really. But I think it's also worth emphasizing, especially to our listeners, when somebody switches from a pill that's more expensive to less expensive heroin, now you're using a needle and introducing risk of infection to the heart, bones, hepatitis, HIV, and more. Yeah, absolutely right. So some people may switch over and start snorting or smoking heroin initially, but most turn to injection drug use, and that carries a whole host of other medical and social problems. More needles on the street, dirty needles laying around, you know, more medical problems for that person, which they can also transmit to their family members. That's why some of the harm reduction services that are out there are so important. And I think um, I want to reemphasize what you brought up last week, that Narcan, narcotic antagonist, which is the antidote for somebody who's about to overdose or seems to be overdosing, now comes in a nasal spray form. Tell us about that a little, if you would. Oh, absolutely. So you don't need any real special training for this. It's a nasal spray form, kind of like the nasal decongestants, but it's in a dose pack, you know, a separate dose. It's not a big bottle of it, right? Um, And if somebody has overdose, you just spray it into their nose and it usually will reverse this. So Narcan is this incredible treatment for an overdose. But it's important to keep in mind, it's not treatment for the addiction or the substance use disorder. It revives them. And then also important to keep in mind is that with the much more uh, potent analogs, carfentanil, fentanyl that are out there, that somebody may actually be revived from Narcan and then overdose without taking any additional drugs a little bit later because the Narcan's worn off. So if you give somebody Narcan, which you can get in many distributing places, that's easy to get. And I suggest everybody carry it in their purse, frankly. And you revive somebody with that, they'll be, the opiates will be gone, they'll be off the receptors, they'll get up, they'll walk away. It's incredibly important that they still go to the ER. So the message is rebound is very possible, especially with these more potent drugs. So if you're fortunate enough to save somebody from an overdose, don't count on sending them home to bed, have a good night's sleep. Do the full job. Take them to the emergency room because there's a good chance they might rebound and and overdose again. Let's go into the next segment, if we could. Um, Denny, there are so many different types of care available, and 
the comprehensive care includes, as you stress, counseling as well as medications. Let's hear about some of those forms of therapy. Okay, so it's important to know um, that for those who have not been in care before, that there's different levels of care. There's medical detox when somebody from alcohol or other drugs needs to be detoxed, uh, opioids as well, under medical supervision to taper them off those drugs. And then there's residential or inpatient to continue the gains made. And then after that, there's several kinds of outpatient. There's what's called partial hospitalization, which is from nine to three, usually five days a week. There's intensive outpatient, which is usually three hours a day, three days a week. And then there's traditional outpatient. So somebody can go to these different levels of care. They can go to those uh, levels of care, um, the outpatient types in person or virtually or by via telehealth. Um, and then the, there's also psychosocial types of care, your different counseling, and then medication care. We have about 30 seconds left in this segment. The formats are all different as well. Yeah, so there's group, there's individual, there's family sessions, there's psychoeducational, uh, where you get are in workshops and whatnot, and they should have all of those. And then there's different uh, modalities within them, like uh, cognitive behavioral, focused expressive, motivational interviewing, places should be able to offer all of these. Let's take a little break and we'll be back because I want to hear some more explanation about the psychodrama as well. And, and as you always say, every case is unique. So you're going to offer each patient uh, a tailored therapy for that man or woman. We'll be right back with Dr. Danny Carice from Recovery Centers of America. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. If you have a question for the medical mailbag, just send a note to doctor at yourradiodoctor.net. And we're back with Dr. Danny Carice here on Your Radio Doctor. Danny, we're talking about opioid use disorder, and we know that counseling and medications are both important. What are some of the medications, or I know you use the expression medication-assisted therapy. Tell us about some of the meds, if you would. Yeah, well, for opioids, there is uh, there are three primary medications that can be used. So there's methadone, there's buprenorphine, um, and there's naltrexone. So those are the opioid medications. Naltrexone has also been shown to be very effective with alcohol. Um, and then there's other medications for alcohol, like antabuse. And I know that these medicines work in different ways. I think people have become much more aware of therapy when we listen to all the therapies, say, for COVID. Sometimes you stop the virus from replicating. Other times you'd block the receptor where the virus lands. In this case, you use two categories of medicines. Some are agonists and some are antagonists. How would people understand that? Well, so the agonist, methadone is an agonist, buprenorphine is a partial agonist. So an agonist kind of gloms onto the receptor site that the heroin would be on, and it blocks the heroin from coming onto it, and it also um, delivers a steady dose of the opioid. So um, it's easier to start because people don't go through withdrawal first. It's more difficult to stop because people still have to withdraw from that just like they would withdraw from the heroin, um, and there's some abuse potential with it. On the other hand, an antagonist like naltrexone, um, the person has to detox first, but that kind of gloms onto the receptor site, right, and it blocks opioids from hitting it, and it has no opioid effect. So it, it basically sits an inner ingredient on top of the receptor site so that the person will not... Um, feel the effects if they use uh, 
use uh, opioids. So the, again, it's harder to start because there's detox. It's easy to stop because there's no addictive properties or dependent properties to it. There's no abuse potential. But one of the few things that a lot of people say, this is their reason for not using it, is that if you're in a massive accident or whatnot and you get opioids for pain, um, until you unblock those receptors, you won't feel that um, pain relief either. Mm. So it's really interesting to hear that explanation. It's so much clearer when you say that. And the important thing is that neither methadone or the uh, buprenorphine or the naltrexone, also known as Vivitrol, none of them allow for euphoria, which is the high that people hope to get when they use, when they abuse or misuse opioids, yes? Uh, that's right. That's right. With very few exceptions if they really overdo it with the, with the drugs. But I think methadone was the first one. And um, it actually came into the U.S. in 1947, quite a while ago. This effectiveness was realized by about 1960. And 1971 was when its use really expanded. And if you think of that, that coincides with the time the Vietnam vets were first coming back some of whom were addicted to opium and other opioids while they were away mm. needed treatment, right? Um, regulations uh, change in 2001, more people could have access to it. But what it does and what you're talking about is it activates the opiate receptors when it's used correctly, but it doesn't cause euphoria or cravings. And because those receptors are taken care of, so to speak, it reduces cravings for the illicit opioids and prevents withdrawal from the heroin. So the person can function while blocking the high from things like heroin, hydrocodone, oxycontin, and whatnot. And what a number of studies, in fact, several hundred studies have shown for methadone is that there's a 60% decrease in IV drug use. There, it improves treatment retention. It maintains abstinence from heroin. There's less criminal activity. There's better quality of life. Um, counseling is also important with it. Uh, and also importantly, methadone is, has little effect on alcohol or cocaine. So what's interesting, and I think the take-home message is, yes, it competes with opioids for the receptors, and in the process, it decreases the cravings. The person could still function, um, but they're not going to get high from codeine or heroin if they try to take it. So, And, of course, counseling is important. And then what's, what distinguishes methadone from the buprenorphine? Well, buprenorphine is what we call a um, partial agonist. So buprenorphine was really a great discovery, most recent advance in MIT, um, FDA approved in about 2002. It's safer, longer acting, it has an easier withdrawal. Um, also, counseling still is important and it minimizes cravings, it minimizes withdrawal symptoms, it does not cause euphoria. The reason it's safer for, from abuse is because there's this sealing effect in it which protects from an overdose. Um, typically, and I think this was just a really elegant uh, way to make this, they will mix buprenorphine with, with um, naloxone, which is the opioid blocker. And it's inert when you take it as prescribed. It's a sublingual usually. And when you take it that way, it's fine. But if you try to melt that sublingual piece of material in water and heat it up and inject it, it actually activates the opioid antagonist. So somebody cannot abuse it in that way. Um, and so it, it is good. One of the issues with it is that it has to be prescribed by a physician who's gone and gotten more certification uh, to be able to prescribe it. There's limits in how many people they can prescribe to, uh, but it's very effective. And there's also now an implantable form and there's a once a month injection now. Incredible. 
it's just amazing. It's like an app on an app. <laughs> and then the the other drug, the naltrexone, also known as Vivitrol, the beauty of that is it's also very effective in reducing people who abuse alcohol, yes? Yes. I mean, Vivitrol was first tested um, with, with very, very heavy drinkers who did not want to quit. It wasn't in the U.S. It was in Russia. Um, first tests early on were these Russian dock workers, and, and they basically said, well, you know, I'm spending a lot of money on alcohol, so anything that'll help me, you know, sure. And they gave these folks um, the naltrexone, and it stopped them from really wanting more alcohol. And, and it's interesting, the reason it first, the way it first came out um, was to look at um, rat studies when we found out that rats would drink more when they were given pain, but if they were given this medication, they tended not to drink more even when they got the pain, and the pain in this case were little shocks to their feet, sadly. Um, so it's it's really an interesting uh, medication. There's, uh, there's no sedation with it, there's no dependence on it, um, and the it blocks the receptors, like we said, it doesn't activate them and you can, you can take it orally but the problem with the oral dosing was that um, a problem of non-compliance people would just stop taking it mm. there's a monthly injection but for those initial studies it really profoundly reduced drinking people have, would have like a few drinks these are guys that would have like you know four six packs after work you know and they would have a few drinks and they'd say you know I really don't want any more for the opioids it really blocks the effects and it, it decreases the desire and what's really fascinating to me is you mentioned earlier that we can look at a brain on amphetamines and then off for a week and off for a month. And the changes that we can document on imaging, um, which really tells us there are parts of the brain uh, for different functions, which we knew, but when we can see it, it it's really fascinating. So opioid use disorder meds really have a twofold purpose. They replace the drug, but they also heal the brain. Tell us about that, if you would. Yeah, I mean, um, RCA is participating in a study with Nora Volka out of NIAAA. Um, there's this book, they're feeling that there's really two ways that it works. And one is the very simplistic way that if you take somebody off of the drug, they're not searching for the drug, they're not possibly prostituting for the drug or stealing for the drug, they're not involved in the lifestyle for the drug, they're not um, impacting their physical health. That when you take somebody off the drug and all of those things um, level out, and in addition to that, they're not getting high and then coming off and the high and coming off and high and coming off four or five times a day. They have a steady state of the drug flowing through their system on a consistent basis. Um, then that is when the brain can heal both just from not being part of the lifestyle and, and running around a lot, but, but neurologically from the ability for those medications to then heal the brain. And there's a number of studies trying to show the extent to which it heals the brain. We know time heals it as well also, but we do think the medications help heal it as well. So it seems pretty straightforward and your explanations are clear and easy to understand. What are some of the challenges and activities needed for utilizing these medications in, in substance use disorder in general in treatment? Yeah. Um, well, some of the um, some of the challenges are with the um, methadone is only prescribed for maintenance, meaning the person is going to stay on the medication in um, opioid treatment programs, what's called OTPs, what used to be called methadone maintenance programs. That's the only place you can get methadone. Um, so that's the first piece, and the person generally has to show up 
at least five, six days a week to get that medication for quite a while before they're then allowed to show up five or four days a week. And so that's, you know, some of the challenges are that it has to be a separate building, you know, license for that. Um, and then, and so you need a physician and you need a prescriber available. Um, with the buprenorphine, some of the challenges are again, that you have to, um, you know, doctors need a special waiver. So first they have to notify somebody the intent to prescribe. They have to get eight hours training. They have to get a special waiver. There's a limit to the number of patients that they can treat. So that's an awful lot to go through. And I always, I'm very big on analogies. And I always wonder, where is the eight hours training, the notice of intent, the waiver that you need to prescribe all the opioids that, that have been prescribed very heavily in the past 10, 15 years, you know, but now we need all those kind of hoops to jump through to be able to prescribe the medication that treats the opioid use disorder. That's kind of odd to me. Um, so. A bit hypocritical, yeah. Let's take a little break. We're here with Dr. Denny Carice from Recovery Centers of America. Today's edition of Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross, can be enjoyed anytime, anywhere, at your convenience. Just download the Odyssey app and search Your Radio Doctor. It's health education on demand. Welcome back to your radio doctor. We're talking about the opioid epidemic. Danny, I know there are a lot of challenges. What do some of the national surveys tell us? Well, there's one great survey. It's called NSATS, which stands for the National Survey of Substance Abuse Treatment Services. And that's from a group called SAMHSA, which is the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration out of DHHS, the Department of Health and Human Services. And as you can see, the feds really like their acronyms. So, uh, but this is a long-standing, been around for years. It's a very comprehensive, very valid study. And the interesting thing about this study is that it showed that um, 10% of all treatment programs in the country are these opioid treatment programs. An opioid treatment program typically is a place where you get methadone or suboxone, sometimes Vivitrol, and counseling but it it's includes opioids by definition of what an opioid treatment program is. It includes a medication for the opioids. Um, so and when we look at all, there's about 15,000 um, uh, substance abuse treatment facilities in the country that do drug and alcohol treatment. And 33% of them offer buprenorphine. And that's including the 10% who are opioid treatment programs. So of all the treatment programs out there that are not opioid treatment programs, only 23% offer buprenorphine. And only 18% of the opioid of the programs out there that are not opioid treatment programs offer Vivitrol. And that's an amazing number to me since these numbers tend to be inflated because this is the response that people make to a survey. So just to, again, my analogy is 73% of them say they provide services, provide services in Spanish. And I, you know, I've run studies in 300 treatment programs before, you know, that does not sound reasonable to me. And when I look at the fact that 7% of the programs in the country say they provide services in Farsi, which is over a thousand programs, that to me says that these numbers are actually lower than they, than they uh, suggest. 
Why do you think so many providers, healthcare providers, are unwilling to offer the various forms of medication that you speak so highly? I mean, you you are so experienced, and you have um, experience. You're a PhD in psychology and an associate professor at Penn in psychiatry. You've seen it all. Why do you think so many providers are hesitating? Well, I mean, I think that falls into a number of categories, but I'll just start with um, the American Society of Addiction Medicine, ASAM. They wrote an article not too long ago, and they asked people about, uh, you know, offering medications and whatnot. And so some of the the, uh, co- the answers that they quoted in their article was, you know, programs that said, we offer Vivitrol as maintenance, but take a negative view of buprenorphine. So in other words, they're okay with a medication that blocks opioids and doesn't activate the receptor, but they're not okay with a medication that would be seen more as a replacement. And in fact, that's another thing they said. It's like substituting one addiction for another. Um, And then somebody actually even said, well, we mentioned there's medication available, but we remind them they came here to get off drugs. And uh, that is just not a way to offer a a valid treatment. You know, other folks say stuff like for antabuse. Antabuse is the medication. um, Its trade name is disulfiram. It's been around since 1940. And if somebody's trying to quit alcohol, they're trying to quit and they they come back the next week, they say, I drank over the weekend. They come back the next week, they say it again. And then you say to them, would you be willing to take antabuse? Antabuse is a medication that if the person takes it and they drink even a sip of alcohol, they will get mm-hmm. violently ill. The, uh, sure. The headache, mm-hmm. flushing, nausea, and everything. And people say, oh, antabuse, that's a crutch. Well, you know, I think that person is the most motivated person going. They say, I am so committed to quitting alcohol and having such a hard time with it that I am willing to take a medication that will make me sick if I touch it. And there's the idea, again, of the analogies. It's a crutch. You know, so what if I broke my leg? Would you say to me, oh, no, no, don't use a crutch. You use a crutch when you break your leg until you're ready to walk on your own. And people don't seem to get that. And it's like the analogy you use with diabetes. You don't say, okay, walk five days a week and don't eat sugar or you know, watch your calories, but they need insulin. Sometimes they, a, an oral medication is enough. You have to look at the whole picture and each person is unique. It really is. And with the diabetes example that I often give, um, it's, you know, like what if the person didn't change their diet and they didn't change their behavior and they still needed, you know, treatment for sores and things like that, that the insulin and paying attention to their health should stop the need for. We're not going to say to them, listen, you're not doing the right stuff, so we're taking away your insulin. If we did that, the country would be outraged. And the idea, I mean, we're just getting people to come around, to providers to come around to accepting medications. And, you know, and absolutely they all work best with counseling. But to take the medication away because they either have you know, a recurrence of their disorder, they have a drink or whatnot. That's like taking the person's um, insulin away because they're not eating right and exercising. You would never do that. No. And I know there are other reasons why programs don't offer or even discuss medical-assisted therapy. Tell us about that so we can get on to shout-out. Yeah. they. Um, well, you got to remember the history of the field. So we really grew up as a paraprofessional field, one person with the problem helping the other. And that is hugely beneficial. But we've also become a medical field, a real bona fide 
medical field covered by insurance, right? So we do have a lot of folks that, you know, I didn't need I didn't need anything to get over my depression or I didn't need any drugs to help, neither do you. You know, you have to do the program yourself. No chemical aids. This is substituting one addiction for another. You'll become addicted to them. You know, so there's a lot of kind of experiential um, experiences that people in the field have had that make them say that because they don't see this so much as a medical disease. So, you know, it's it's tough to turn that um, turn that around, so to speak. You know, the other pieces, and I really hate to say this, there there are places where they may not offer or discuss medications. They may not discuss medications because they don't offer them. You know, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. maybe they don't discuss inpatient because they don't have that. And the analogy I have there is cancer. What if you had cancer and the medical provider you saw was only trained in chemo but couldn't offer surgery? So he prescribed chemo despite there being effective evidence-based surgical option and he never told you about the surgical option because he didn't want to lose you as a patient. Again, the country will be outraged and we have to look at this just like the other medical disorders. And, and patient, every patient, in order to make an informed decision, you have to know all the options when you present the plan so the person truly makes his or her own decision with your guidance, but it's not fair to not show them the whole menu of therapies. Um, Danny, I'd like to spend a little time talking about the Recovery Center's program called Shout Out. Tell us about that, if you would. Yeah. So Shoutout is um, RCA's app that offers online and telehealth access to therapists for substance use disorder treatment. And we were very lucky. We were already doing some online, call it virtual care is my preference, but then it seems like you're not really with a real person. So I'll call it telehealth. Um, We were already doing that when COVID hit. So for us to really expand on that, um, was pretty easy. And then we expanded further by developing Shoutout, this app where you can go in and talk to your therapist, where you can where you can log into your group therapy. You can message your therapist, you can get treatment. You can be in your car and pull over, of course, you know, and log into your group. You know, it can be the PHP that we talked about, which is the all day treatment. You know, it can be the intensive treatment or it can just be one hour with your therapist. And then what we did was we added to that app. It's not just kind of like, like, well, that sounds a little bit like you could do it all on Zoom, right? What we, we made it an app and what we added to that was all kinds of content for folks. Like there's daily meditations, there's videos on the 12 steps of AA and NA. There's inspirational stories of our alumni and others who are in recovery. There's access to our free family program, which is called Seeds to Recovery, which is an educational program for families. And then there's links to AA, NA, OA meetings. Um, there's a group gratitude journals. So there's there's all these different things. So it's kind of like a full comprehensive app. And um, a lot of Americans are con- going to continue receiving their mental health and substance use disorder treatment online even after the pandemic via telehealth because it's it's so much more convenient for people, you know. Um, you know, right now, access to therapists also is really difficult uh, because there is such a demand from the pandemic and what's happened with the pandemic. As you know, overdose deaths are up 30% from last year. Um, so there's this incredible demand, and this is just another way to fill that with a really unique uh, service. 
Well, I think that's what's so important about you as an educator. You're trying to share the message with people, and especially in a show like this, when we take a subject and break it down, and as I always say, my goal on the show is to explain to patients listening what you don't know can hurt you. I'm going to ask questions as an educated patient and ask questions that I want the patient to ask, but if they don't know to ask them, they won't get answers. And you explain things so clearly. Education is key. And I'd like to hear a little bit more uh, before we go on about psychodrama. We have about 30 seconds. Tell us about that. Psychodrama is a type of therapy. It's actually one of my favorite types where you may pick different patients in a group to represent the person's mother or the father. Um, and it's a very, the big thing about psychodrama, it's very experiential. It's not just listening and talking. Um, it's a very experiential thing. So you may have somebody who's the identified mom and dad in the back having an alcohol argument. You always come home drunk. You're never here. you never this. And the person is sitting there and they really start to experience it like they did when they were a kid and that was really happening. And then you move on through the therapy from there. So it's a very experiential therapy. Such important information. Let's take a little break and we'll be back for our wrap-up. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented in part by Recovery Centers of America. When needed, call RCA 1-888-RECOVERY. in our final segment on Your Radio Doctor, we have Dr. Denny Carice from Recovery Centers of America. Denny, let's talk a little bit more about the Shoutout app. I know that you were already doing telemedicine, telehealth prior to the pandemic, so you were ready. And it only increased in value um, when people were isolated. And you, as you always say so well, it's not social distancing, it's physical distancing. We can still be attached socially and offer you the support at recovery centers with telemedicine. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, shout outs really is an extraordinary leap forward um, in terms of the ways we treat patients experiencing addiction, substance use disorders, as I like to call it. But uh, mm-hmm. recent survey showed 84% of people want to continue getting their uh, treatment via telehealth even after the pandemic. A lot of people don't remember the history of this. You know, before the pandemic, telehealth was only available when you were in a doctor's office, a hospital, or a nursing home, and your doctor linked you to another doctor to have services off-site. You couldn't get it at home. You couldn't get it by a therapist or a nurse practitioner. So now we can get telehealth services from counselors, therapists, nurse practitioners, and it can be for anybody, and they can be anywhere at all where they do it, you know? And when you look at RCA's mission, which is to save uh, a million lives from the disease of addiction by treating both the substance use disorder and the mental health issues that come with them, shout out as a way to really um, add to our ability to do that and to eliminate the stigma that's associated with needing these these treatment services and to eliminate some of the barriers, like somebody who's afraid to go in person the first time. They can go online the first time and feel it out. They can go online for a month and then come in person. They can come in person one day and go online two days, and they can do all that through this shout out out. And I think it's so important that you emphasize it's private, it's consistent, you're always there. And shout out really, the goal is to eliminate the stigma associated with the mental health services because that's such an important overlap, the mental health issues along with the uh, drug use. Yeah, there's stigma on both of them. And for folks who need 
uh, treatment for both disorders, which again, 60% of people coming into treatment have a psychiatric disorder when they come in for drug and alcohol treatment. Um, we, now you have the double stigma of the two of those together. So to be able to get your services privately, to be able to not have to walk into a building at this, you know, right away when you're not sure about all this is, is hugely helpful. Well, I have to say your website, recoverycentersofamerica.com, is one of the easiest websites I've ever seen to navigate. Every kind of information about your events, services, uh, programs, it's a beautiful website with all of those listings. And shoutout.com, if people want to check out the uh, the app called Shoutout. And what is your 800 number that people can call 24-7? Well, that's easy. That's 1-800-RECOVERY. Danny, what's your final message for our listeners? My final message would be that there's all different kinds of hope and treatment, and one of them will work for you, and that you should get with us and let us help you, you know, look at all the different options and that people get well every day. Dr. Denny Carice from the Recovery Centers of America, thank you for joining us. More importantly, thank you for the beautiful work you do to save lives and turn people's lives around. Thank you. Now, your real champion, presented by the Rothman Orthopedic Institute. And now for your real champion. I call this segment, Think Outside the Box. When someone's adopted, they often wonder, what did my mother look like? What kind of work did my father do? Did I have brothers or sisters? Why did they give me away? Monica Kelsey was adopted at birth, then raised by a loving Christian family in Ohio. And when she finally connected with her birth mother, it was the best and worst of days. That her birth parents were young and in love wasn't the story. She was devastated to learn that her birth mother had actually been brutally raped and left to die. She abandoned Monica just hours after giving birth. Upon hearing the truth at age 37, Monica didn't want to be the child of a rapist. She didn't want to feel unwanted. She had to pick herself up and change her focus from why to how. How can I take this gift of life I've been given and make a difference? With strength from her faith, she found her purpose and began an operation that would help to save other babies who were abandoned. 47 states give a mother the option to give her baby away anonymously and legally as long as the baby is left in a safe place and someone is informed. After learning that she was abandoned, Monica made it her personal mission to educate others about the Safe Haven Law and save lives of innocent babies from being abandoned. Safe Haven Baby Boxes is an organization which offers a 24-hour hotline for mothers in crisis and makes it possible for a mother to surrender her baby while remaining anonymous. A baby box is a safety device permitted under the state's safe haven law and legally permits a mother in crisis to safely, securely, and anonymously surrender if they are unable to care for their newborn. A baby box is installed in an exterior wall of a designated fire station or hospital. An exterior door automatically locks upon placement of a newborn inside the baby box, and an interior wall allows a medical staff member to secure the surrendered newborn from inside the designated building. Closing the door automatically sends a signal to the staff on call and the baby is brought inside. Monica adds, it's better than leaving a baby to die in a dumpster. 
Your life will go on and the baby is placed. We're saving two lives. Monica has shown her gratitude through a life of service. Four years in the Navy, four more years in the reserves, a retired firefighter and medic. She now spends all of her time at Safe Haven Baby Boxes with her husband, the chief operating officer and the mayor of their hometown, Woodburn, Indiana. She first located her birth mother at age 21, but hesitated to reach out till age 37. When she did reconnect, the painful truth was quickly replaced by a strong love for the woman who chose life over abortion. In fact, Monica's mother had always yearned for the day they would meet. To date, Safe Haven has received 5,000 calls from every state, referred over 500 women to crisis pregnancy centers, assisted in seven adoption referrals, and had 100 legal Safe Haven surrenders. Since the box was first installed in 2016, there have been no dead abandoned babies in the state of Indiana where it started. There are baby boxes in six states and the mission is growing. Educating the public includes billboards that read, surrendering your newborn at a fire station delivers no shame, no blame, no names. She also shares her message with students in hundreds of schools and universities. Monica has authored a book, Blessed to have been abandoned, the story of the baby box lady. She believes that everyone has pain and everyone has a story. When you combine the two, beautiful things happen. We salute you, Monica Kelsey, your real champion. Learn more about Safe Haven Baby Boxes at shbb.org, shbb.org. Thank you for sharing another Sunday with us, and thanks for your great feedback. We enjoy bringing you information about medical issues in an understandable way so you can make better decisions for yourself and your loved ones. Please send us a story of a real champion in your world, your family, officer, community. Send us a suggestion for a medical topic you'd like us to discuss. It's July and it's hot. Remember to stay inside or find shade. Drink lots of fluids and remember your pets, they need extra water too. Please don't leave them in a hot car while you do an errand. And I know I don't have to remind you not to leave your kids in a car. Next week, another great show, the nation's leading authority on pets as therapy. Dr. Ed Cregan from the Mayo Clinic, a cancer specialist with years of experience in palliative therapy. Your dogs, cats, and other pets provide comfort and unconditional love, but they can also help your physical well-being. Now get a big glass of lemonade and find some shade so you can spend the next two hours with Sid Mark as he brings you Sundays with Sinatra. This is Dr. Marianne Ritchie, your radio doctor, wishing you a great week and reminding you always that your health is your wealth. Thanks for listening to your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, a Jacob Media production. If you're interested in learning more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Krause at 267-261-3428. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. Today's program has been pre-recorded.